0: Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the 2023 Russell Kirk Lecture featuring Bishop Robert Barron please welcome Richard Reinch, director of the Heritage Foundation's B. Kenneth Simon Center for American Studies.
1: Well, welcome to the B. Kenneth Simon Center's 2023 Russell Kirk Lecture, featuring Bishop Robert Barron of the Diocese of Winona, Rochester, Minnesota. I have the task of introducing Bishop Barron tonight, a task made difficult by the fact that his publications, media presence, teaching and leadership exemplify faith and reason, courage and humility, along with tremendous insights into our cultural situation and how we might best engage it. What is true for me, and I know for many of you in attendance tonight, is that his writings and lectures and videos and podcasts and interviews have become our regular companions, instructing us in the gospels the Old Testament prophets, Catholic social thought, the meaning of great literature and philosophy, contemporary culture, and of course, the finer points of Catholic doctrine. So tonight, Bishop Barron will address the topic of the breakdown of the Tocquevillian equilibrium. Prior to his 2022 appointment as the Bishop of Winona, Rochester, he had served for seven years as auxiliary bishop for the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. Bishop Barron was also the rector of Mundelein Seminary in Chicago, where he taught for several years. But most know him as the foremost evangelist of Roman Catholicism in America, globally even. He is the founder of Word on Fire Catholic Ministries, which uses, quote, media, both old and new, to proclaim the gospel of Christ. On that front, Bishop Barron's work is nothing short of spectacular. His award-winning 10-part series, Catholicism, offers an amazing presentation of the church through its sacraments, saints, church architecture and history. He is a number 1 Amazon best-selling author. He has published numerous books, essays and articles on theology and the spiritual life. Bishop Barron's website wordonfire.org reaches millions of people each year and he is one of the most followed Catholics on social media. His YouTube videos have been viewed over 90 million times. But what is noteworthy in this regard is the quality and manner of his engagement. He is at the forefront of the effort to reconnect the so-called nuns, or persons of no religious faith to Christianity, a segment of Americans that grows every year, a phenomenon not limited to Roman Catholicism, and one that is slowly changing our country, and not for the better What Bishop Barron stresses is that the most significant cause of the growing affiliation of nuns is that they were never taught seriously their faith to begin with. Translation, this is an important business. In an age of unbelief, if not hostility towards Christianity, Bishop Barron urges the recovery of the church fathers, the Bible, the lives of the saints, classical philosophy and literature, and the record of learning in the church that stretches over centuries. Bishop Barron responds to the new atheists that he agrees with them in terms of the God they dismiss and their arguments. He too doesn't believe in a God who is merely the highest being or the topmost item in the universe, a God that succeeds by making us his puppets or demanding irrational belief. God, Bishop Barron argues, is transcendent, the creator through whom everything comes to be in the world that God is the sheer act of being itself. The fear is that God wants to dominate us and diminish us through controlling us. He asks, what if it's the exact opposite? Bishop Barron repeatedly quotes the second century saint, Saint Irenaeus of Lyon's observation, quote, the glory of God is man fully alive. We become what we love and what we praise. Right praise manifests itself in a well-ordered, joyful and flourishing life. In a recent interview with Jordan Peterson, Bishop Barron was repeatedly asked why so many in Western countries continue to fall away from religious belief, including Catholicism. Why are you in? Peterson inquired, and Bishop responded that his sense of mission in life was fired for him at an early age. The culprits were Thomas Aquinas's cosmological argument for the existence of God, and Thomas Merton's wonderful book, Seven Story Mountain. In their own way, these authors had summoned him to a profound mission for his life. The third part of Bishop Barron's answer offered the example of Father Walter Chiswick, the young American priest who spent 20 years in Soviet prison camps, 15 of those years in Siberia. As a young seminary student, he heard Pope Pius XI's call, quote, for heroes to go into Russia and he decided to train for that mission. But following that call led to severe consequences for him. And in his book, With God and Russia, Father Chizik said that the two decades he spent in prison involved accepting God's will and doing what good he could. He decided to, quote, be Christ and bear the sufferings around me. He blessed Russia when he was finally evacuated. But we, too, need heroes to go into many areas pursuits, and disciplines to save our country, to recreate the world with the seeds of renewal. And there is no one better to instruct us in that call than Bishop Barron. Welcome.
2: God bless you all. Thank you for that lovely introduction. Thanks for reading me so carefully over the years and drawing out the <laughs> themes that really are central, I think, to my uh, to my writing and teaching. Um, I want to apologize in advance for my somewhat scratchy voice. I'm in the, what I hope are the last stages of a, of a bad cold. And I just got through an all-day meeting of the USCCB. We started at 8.30. We ended at 5.00. So <laughs> this is a relief from that experience. Uh, now that I'm, I'm Bishop of a Diocese especially, I, I don't have time to, you know, prepare more serious lectures, so I, I try to take maybe one or two a year that I can really sink my teeth into. And when I received this invitation, I said, that's what I really want to do because of my respect for the Heritage Foundation and my deep respect for Russell Kirk, someone that I've studied and whose writings I've used for many, many years. So uh, it inspired me to do some work on this, um, on this paper. As everybody in this room knows, the issue of the relationship between liberal democracy and the Catholic Church has long been a vexed one. If one consults Catholic leaders in the 19th century, very much including the popes who dominated the second half of that century, namely Pius IX and Leo XIII, one would find fairly vigorous condemnations of capitalism and the liberal order. Moreover, if one surveyed the writings of leading figures within the American polity of that same century, one would discover sharply worded critiques of Catholicism as a system alien to the American way of life. For a particularly good example, take a look at Ulysses S. Grant's appraisal in 1875, that Catholicism could prove more divisive in America than the Confederacy itself had been. And if one harbors any doubts whether this attitude survived well into the 20th century, one need look no further than the ruminations of Woodrow Wilson and the warnings of a slew of cultural leaders at the prospect of a Catholic president in 1960. At the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century a number of catholic ecclesiastics including james gibbons the archbishop of baltimore and john ireland the archbishop of saint paul commenced to advocate for a rapprochement between catholicism and american democracy subsequently toward the middle of the last century catholic academics such as john courtney murray and john ryan began to articulate in a more rationally disciplined manner the points of contact between classical catholic political philosophy and the principles of modern liberalism. The ruminations of both ecclesiastics and academics often centered around the importance of toleration and religious liberty. And indeed, the Vatican II document, Dignitatis Humanae, largely penned by Courtney Murray, made the American approach to the rapport between objective religious truth and freedom of conscience part of the official teaching of the Catholic Church. Then in the years following Vatican II, a plethora of intellectual players within the Catholic Academy In the United States emerged to continue and deepen this line of thought. One thinks of George Weigel, Michael Novak, Robert George, Robert Sirico, and perhaps especially of Richard John Newhouse. Their influence upon St. John Paul II became unmistakably clear in the great pope's 1991 encyclical letter Centesimus Annus, which was simultaneously a celebration of Leo XIII's groundbreaking Rerum Novarum and a thoughtful consideration of the events of 1989. In the course of that letter, John Paul enthusiastically endorsed the market economy and the form of liberal democracy that it obtained generally in the West. Now, if we look more deeply into the arguments presented by this school of thought, referred to today as fusionist, since it appreciates the tight connection between Catholicism and political modernity, we notice a number of key themes. First, the fusionists insists that the liberal democratic emphasis upon the dignity of the individual is unintelligible apart from biblical assumptions. Thomas Jefferson implied as much when he said in the prologue to the Declaration that all people are, quote, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. If rights are granted by the state, they can be withdrawn when it's convenient for the state to do so. If they're a function of cultural consensus, they can disappear when that consensus evanesces. History, of course, provides numerous examples of precisely those moves. Furthermore, equality, one of the most foundational liberal political principles, is similarly grounded in a theological vision of things. For as the ancient political theorists saw with such clarity, we human beings are, in almost every regard, radically unequal in size, strength, beauty, moral virtue, etc., in point of fact, the political systems proposed by both Plato and Aristotle are predicated upon the assumption of irreducible inequality among the members of the polis. For Plato, everyone in the city falls into one of three altogether distinct social classes. For Aristotle, only a small contingent of property-intelligent males are permitted to partake of authentically public life. Once again, Jefferson gives away the game when he claims, as self-evident, the assertion, quote, all men are created equal despite our enormous inequalities in practically every respect we are indeed all equally children of god created by his choice and destined to share eternal life with him take god out of the picture and it becomes extremely difficult to defend this crucial principle of a democratic polity finally both the rule of law and the notion of limited government are biblical in inspiration Time and again, the prophets remind the Israelite kings of their obligation to follow Torah and that those potentates stand, whether they like it or not, under the judgment of God. This means that the law has primacy over the whims and private designs of anyone, including and especially kings. More to it, the sovereignty of God implies that the scope and power of any earthly rule are strictly limited, hemmed in by the demands of the moral law. We might refer in this context to the magnificent criticism of the corruption of kings found in the speech given by the prophet Samuel. The fusionists have long argued persuasively, I think, that the myriad restrictions placed on civic leaders within a democratic polity, as well as the system of checks and balances, are predicated finally upon these biblical assumptions. Now, all these observations lead me back to the beginning of my talk. If all this is true, and indeed I think it is, Why did so many reflective people, and mind you, not just bigots, I mean, there were plenty of bigots on both sides of the divide, but there were also a lot of reflective people uh, who felt that the two systems, the Catholic and American systems, were incompatible. Well, to provide a fully adequate response to that question would take me far beyond the confines of this paper, but permit me to explore just a few angles. Anti-liberal Catholic theorists would have drawn attention to the roots of liberalism in the thought of Thomas Hobbes and John Locke, And would have remarked how those thinkers represented a radical rupture from the classically catholic understanding of both the political and moral orders in this regard of course hobbes is particularly instructive consciously breaking with the long tradition of political philosophy that preceded him hobbes endeavored to articulate a science of politics like in form and purpose to the physical sciences that were beginning to emerge in his time this amounted to a setting aside of final causality and questions of moral aims and an embrace of efficient causality alone in the political order. Accordingly, Hobbes set out to explore what actually motivates human beings to act as they do. And his reductionistic conclusion was that the efficient cause of our behavior is at bottom. I should say uh, the efficient causes of our behavior are at bottom, the emotions accompanying the desire to preserve life and to avoid violent death. This quotation from chapter 11 of the Leviathan signals the sea change that Hobbes represents. I'm quoting directly from his, the original English of the Leviathan. The felicity of this life consisteth not in the repose of a mind satisfied, for there is no such finis ultimus, ultimate aim, nor sumum bonum, great good, as is spoken of in the books of the old moral philosophers, close quote. The complete relativizing of truth and goodness in the Hobbesian program becomes clear furthermore in this passage from the sixth chapter of Leviathan. I'm quoting again. Whatsoever is the object of man's appetite or desire, that it is which he for his part calleth good, and the object of his hate and aversion he calleth evil, close quote. Whereas classical politics was predicated upon a keen sense of objective moral value, and indeed a highest good to which all people aspire by nature. Hobbesian politics was predicated upon the preservation of biological life. Now, any collectivity of individuals all motivated by a selfish desire to live and to avoid violent death will necessarily come into conflict, and the result will be, in Hobbes' famous phrase, a life that is, quote, solitary, nasty, brutish, and short, close quote. It is to avoid this intolerable situation that human beings resolve to enter a social contract by which they surrender their rights and prerogatives to the Leviathan state. The practically unlimited authority granted to the sovereign is paradoxically in the self-interest of each party to the contract. That was at least Hobbes' assumption. Once again, Hobbes would insist that the sovereign remains utterly indifferent to matters of moral excellence or spiritual attainment. Rather, his purpose is to protect warring individuals from one another and this touches upon a deeper matter namely hobbes's unambiguous assumption that pace practically the entire tradition of political philosophy that came before him we are not by nature political or social we are so only artificially and by means of a contractual contrivance relatedly we're not naturally good or ordered to friendship just the contrary The entire Hobbesian program rests upon the conviction that our natural state is one of utter self interest and hostility to our neighbors. Thus, in his pithy formula, the state of nature is the state of war. Now, Hobbes's program was in essentials adopted by John Locke, though Locke softened it in many regards. For instance, he opined that a kind of natural moral law obtained even in the pre political state of nature, and he held that one exited that state by means of two contracts, not one as in Hobbes, thus allowing for the possibility of rebelling against a corrupt state without reverting ipso facto into the state of war. That was decisive for Jefferson. But the amoral, non-teleological conception of political life remained in place. Thus for Locke, rights are but a function of our desire to preserve life and avoid violent death. In his language, we have the right to those things that we cannot not desire namely, life itself and its necessary concomitants, liberty and property. Any sense of a transcendent good to which human life is properly ordered or of a common good that goes beyond the mere physical well-being of the members of the political society is in the Hobbesian manner missing. The government which secures these rights remains, if I might put it this way, protective rather than directive. This citation from Locke's letter on toleration is apposite here. I'm quoting now from Locke. The Commonwealth seems to me to be a society of men constituted only, and that's his, his own uh, italics, only for the procuring, preserving, and advancing of their own civil interests. Civil interests I call life, liberty, and health of the body, and the possession of outward things such as money, lands, houses, furniture, and the like, close quote the Lockean suspension of the metaphysical good becomes even clearer when we venture outside of Locke's explicitly political writing and turn to his epistemological masterpiece, An Essay on Human Understanding. In this text, he lays out a revolutionary idea of will as primarily an active power of self-determination. Whereas on the traditional reading, a good outside the will prompts that faculty to respond, on Locke's interpretation, the will has ontological primacy and remains undetermined by anything outside of itself. Here's his account, I'm quoting again. For that which determines the general power of directing to this or that particular direction is nothing but the agent itself exercising the power that it has in that particular way, close quote. In a radical departure from the standard interpretation, Locke holds that the direct object of the will is not a thing, but an action, namely its own. Rather than appreciating the will in the Thomistic manner as extending itself into reality, being lured by the good, Locke effectively shrinks its area of concern. Here's his own extremely clear and illuminating formulation, quote, the will or power of volition is conversant about nothing but our own actions terminates there and reaches no further, close quote. So concerned is he to maintain the control that the will has over itself, Locke argues that the self, quote, not only begins its act of will from itself alone, but that movement likewise ends exclusively in the self as the will's proper object, close quote. We're we're a a continent away from, from someone like Aristotle or Aquinas in that. Whatever connection eventually obtains with the world outside of the dynamics of the will remains secondary and extrinsic, subordinate to the sovereignty and sufficiency of the choosing self. Now, this treatment of the thought of Locke permits me to quote the man for whom this lecture series is named. Throughout his career, Russell Kirk remained disquieted by the manner in which Locke departed from the classical political tradition. Instead of being created in the image of God, man is, on Locke's interpretation, simply homo economicus, and his purpose is not to do the will of God or pursue the common good, but rather to protect his property rights. I'm quoting Kirk now. There is, he concluded, no warmth in Locke and no sense of consecration, and utility not love is the motive of Locke's individualism, close quote. That's Russell Kirk. So, what was concerning to many Catholic theorists of the 19th century, and again, not just anti modern, you know, the bigots, was precisely this Hobbesian Lockean reductionism regarding political life, which they saw on display in the most important of the founding documents of our country. Now, without gainsaying for a moment the observations made above regarding its biblical overtones, it's difficult not to see that the prologue to Jefferson's Declaration remains a distinctively modern text. First, the conventional artificial nature of the political enterprise is defended, as well as fundamentally Hobbesian, Lockean view of the rights that government is invented to defend. To be sure, Jefferson has adjusted the Lockean triplet of life, liberty, and property to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But that adjustment only confirms the manner in which Jefferson departs from classical political thought. For the great Western philosophical tradition, the determination of what constitutes objective happiness was perhaps the major preoccupation. Think of Aristotle's treatment of virtue in relation to eudaimonia in the Nicomachean ethics. Think of Plato's subtle phenomenology of the good in a variety of his dialogues. Think of Aquinas' exhaustive analysis of beatitudo, happiness, at the commencement of the Prima Secundae of the Summa. In all three of those thinkers, The objective good was construed as the determining factor in the establishment of a just social order. But in Jefferson, in a typically modern way, all this is left to the self-determination of the individual subject, the pursuit of happiness rather than happiness itself taking pride of place. These worries of 19th and 20th century figures are taken up by several Catholic scholars today who question the philosophical underpinnings of the American founding. One thinks of, among others, Adrian Vermeule, Patrick Deneen, and D.C. Schindler. All these philosophers maintain that the distinctively modern or post-Christian metaphysics, informing the political speculations of the founders, compromises the practical arrangements that they put in place. So the question naturally arises, who has this at least relatively right? The fusionists, whom I was praising earlier with complete sincerity, or these neo-integralists who might be more sensitive to the issues i've just been raising is american-style liberalism compatible with or repugnant to catholic christianity now an adequate answer to that question would take me again far beyond the confines of this presentation but at the risk of sounding a, a tad facile i'd venture to respond both my position is The the American polity is fundamentally modern in form and inspiration, but remains conditioned by certain deeply held religious assumptions. It's a Hobbesian, Lockean system, but with overtones of the Christian worldview that still haunted the minds of the founders and perhaps more importantly, shaped the souls of the first American citizens. It's that odd sort of equilibrium between a a modern uh, conception but but yet this religious undertone, which leads me to the person I uh, named this lecture for. Um, It's almost a cliche to point it out, but no one managed to pick his way through this intellectual thicket more perceptively or creatively than the 19th century French diplomat and political philosopher Alexis de Tocqueville. After an extensive tour of the Jackson era United States in the mid 1830s, Tocqueville shared what he had discovered about the peculiarly American manner of reconciling liberalism with an ardent religiosity. His conclusion in a word is that the latter effectively makes possible the former, or better, provides it with an animating purpose. A handful of citations will sum up his argument. Here's the first one, quote, The Americans combine the notions of religion and liberty so intimately in their minds that it's impossible to make them conceive of one without the other, close quote. And next, quote, it must never be forgotten that religion gave birth to Anglo-American society. In the United States, religion is therefore commingled with all the habits of the nation and all the feelings of patriotism, whence it derives a peculiar force, close quote. And third, so religion, which among the Americans never directly takes part in the government of society, must be considered as the first of their political institutions. For if it does not give them the taste for liberty, it singularly facilitates their use of it." Close quote. That's very interesting to me. Uh, I think that last quote is the most illuminating. For it articulates the idea of ordered liberty, or freedom not as an end in itself, which you see in the Lockean epistemology and and anthropology, but as directed to a moral good. Tocqueville saw that the proposal of the moral good is not the business of a liberal government, which retains its typically modern agnosticism in that regard, but is offered to the society through the ministrations of the churches and religious institutions that pervade the commonwealth. We might say that in his view, the vibrant religiosity of America served as a corrective and complement to the Hobbesian nature of the liberal project, rounding its pointed edges. Though there are many concrete examples of this dynamic that could be cited, suffice to say that the two greatest social transformations in American history, namely the end of slavery and the end of racial segregation, were both prompted by religious people, drawing their moral inspiration clearly from the text of the Bible. The suggestion of the ethical good in both cases did not come as it were from above, from the secular authority, but from below, from a religiously saturated culture. Now, all these reflections bring us to what is perhaps the most significant cultural phenomenon of our time, what I would characterize as the collapse of this Tocquevillian equilibrium. The last roughly 60 years have witnessed a disturbing unraveling of the political te- of the religious texture of our society, unprecedented in American history and indeed I would say in all of history. As Charles Taylor's indicated, it would have been unthinkable for someone to say in 1500 to believe that happiness could be had apart from a reference to God. But now non-belief in God and the acceptance of a completely this-worldly frame of reference for human flourishing are widespread. The mainstream Protestant churches in the U.S. are in free fall, and Catholicism, to be frank, is not far behind. Its numbers relatively strong only due to immigration. In 1970, roughly 3% of Americans would have described themselves as having no religious affiliation. But today that figure has risen to 26% it rises still higher to 40% among those under 30. Though these trends were emerging 30 years ago, commentators at that time tended to reassure us that though fewer and fewer people were attending church services, the basics of religion, belief in God, the afterlife, the existence of the soul, basic moral principles, etc., remained in place. The sociological work of uh, Father Andrew Greeley from the 1970s and 1980s is an extremely instructive example, but in accord with the Will Hertzberg cut flowers principle, all of these convictions, once deracinated from concrete religious practice and institutional affiliation, endured for a time, but then commenced very rapidly to dry up. And as Tocqueville, excuse me, would have foreseen, this waning has had enormous political and cultural implications, permitting the more Severe Hobbesian structure of our polity to assert itself. One of the most conspicuous consequences of the collapse of institutional religion is what joseph Ratzinger, Pope Benedict XVI, called famously the dictatorship of relativism, or the conviction that there's no objective ground for morality and certainly no sumum bonum which would serve to regulate human thought and activity. See, how like Hobbes that sounds, doesn't it? but reasserted today very strongly. Absent this normativity, the freedom of the individual comes to generate value. Instead of imitating and appropriating for oneself the objective goods of the natural and moral orders, the sovereign self creates a personal good and cultivates a personal truth. How familiar that sounds. In the words of Carl Truman, mimesis, imitation, has given way to poiesis, creation. Instead of imitating and incorporating the great objective values, I now create them out of the sovereignty of my own will. Again, that Lockean overtones, the nature of the will, that isn't lured by the good outside of itself, but terminates in its own activity. It's reasserted itself. One of the clearest artistic expressions of this viewpoint was the film that won the Academy Award for Best Picture a few years ago called The Shape of Water. The plot of the film, of course, believe it or not, was a young woman who falls in love and then has sexual relations with a creature half human and half fish, you remember? The the villain of the story, of course, was a believing Christian presented as a boorish hypocrite, but the title gives away the game. The only shape there is is the shape of water, which has no form except the one that we choose to give it. (coughs) Excuse me. Though this understanding held sway in Hobbes and in a more mitigated way in Locke, it was largely covered over by the widespread and deeply held religious convictions of most Americans prior to 1960. And though this is not immediately obvious to most, the subjectivization of value conduces automatically to the war of all against all. Why? For there's no common point of reference. No transcendent set of norms to which all people in common can submit themselves, but only autonomous individuals, atoms with no natural affinity to one another. If you find yourself doubting whether the state of war obtains, go any time of the day or night on Twitter or practically any social media site that allows for comments. Arguments about moral and intellectual matters have largely disappeared from these massively popular venues because... Authentic argument has to be based upon some sense of shared assumptions and values. All that's left is shouting insults at one another from opposing trenches. Numerous studies have indicated, and this breaks my heart, that young people who frequent social media sites are so often beleaguered, depressed, and suffer from something akin to post-traumatic stress disorder. It further supported my thesis that in the absence of religion, the Hobbesianism of the American experiment has reasserted itself. I would draw your attention to one of the principal preoccupations of young people today, namely safe spaces guaranteed by municipal, university or government authority. What seems to preoccupy many today is once again, the protective rather than directive purpose of authority. I mean, don't give me direction, that's up to me to decide, you just better protect me while I engage in self-direction, right? It's not at all surprising that many studies have indicated how young people in our country increasingly are suspicious of freedom of speech, increasingly open to more powerful government regulation, two basic tenets of Hobbesian program. So what's the solution? It's facile enough to say that we should go back to the cultural consensus that obtained prior to 1960, which was instantiated through a plethora of mediating institutions. It would at the very least take time to build back that structure if that was even possible. I might suggest a first step, the recovery of the sense, especially in our young people, of the objectively valuable as opposed to the merely subjectively satisfying. In using this language, I'm borrowing the terminology of Dietrich von Hildebrand, one of the most significant Catholic philosophers of the last century. As an example of the merely subjectively satisfying, Hildebrand frequently proposed the receiving of an unjustified compliment. Though kind words typically produce a rush of good feeling in the one who receives them, there is, in the case of such a compliment, nothing of substance behind them. They merely flatter the ego and leave it unchanged and unchallenged. Those empty words simply find their place within the psychological structure of the ego and do no significant spiritual work. But the objectively valuable confronts the one who perceives it and changes him, rearranging his psyche and subjectivity. Dante's Commedia or Beethoven's Seventh Symphony or Chart Cathedral or the moral heroism of Maximilian Kolbe are not merely subjectively satisfying. It would be ludicrous to say that. Rather, the sheer density of their objective value arrests us, claims us, and sends us on mission as evangelists of their truth and beauty. They they arrest the will. They lure the will. They, They direct and send it. How dull. We're stuck in the little well-lighted space of our own ego created our own value. What a dull space to live in. The objectively valuable breaks breaks through the carapace of that sort of self-regard. In the presence of such values, we're like the great Israelite prophets. We're placed in the passive voice. We don't so much speak our own truth, but we've heard the word of the Lord. And the connection to God I'm making here is not incidental or decorative, for objective values in the epistemic, moral, and aesthetic orders arrange themselves naturally in hierarchies, which means, as Thomas Aquinas saw so clearly, they are named and understood in relation to that which is of highest possible value, the supreme truth, goodness, and beauty. When Paul introduces himself to the Romans in his famous epistle, he characterizes himself as, quote, called and sent to be an apostle, close quote. A higher power has claimed him and commissioned him. In a word, the objectively valuable gives the lie to the culture of self-assertion and self-affirmation that so dominates today. Therefore, I think if we want to restore something like the Tocquevillian equilibrium, which gives a liberal democracy its moral and spiritual ballast, we have to resist the shape of water mentality. And we must, with confidence and joy, introduce our young people to the infinitely more interesting world of objective value. God bless you all. Thanks for listening.
0: And I think they liked what you had to say. Yeah, well, I appreciate them very much. No, thank Thanks again for being here at Heritage for, for your witness. And I, I want to home in on one of the key parts of, of your address. I have some questions for you that are only indirectly related, but I'll be abusive later. Uh, objectively valuable. We spend a lot of time here at Heritage, in addition to the work we do in policy, helping other institutions, not just policy institutions, get started, expand, yeah. scale, as our business friends like to say. The question for you is, does America have a healthy enough institutional life to cultivate what is objectively
2: valuable? Well, I, I worry about it, especially with the, our educational institutions. Because if, if they're predicated upon uh, this sort of dominant subjectivism of our culture, they're not going to draw people into that world. Or if they just accept this view that you know we, we create value, I think a great teacher is someone that, again, breaks into your subjectivity and rearranges it and offers you something. In the introduction, you, know, you made reference to uh, two Thomases that were very important to me as a young kid, Thomas Merton, Seven Story Mountain, and Thomas Aquinas. Both of those represented for me a, a breakthrough, something new, a novum you know, in my consciousness that, that lifted me up out of the little world that I was in. That's what our educational institutions have to do. And I think of all those mediating institutions. I'm a great advocate of that. You know, we shouldn't just think of government and people, but it's government, yes. But then the slew of mediating institutions, whose basic purpose is to inculcate objective value. You know, whether that's a, a local business organization, it's a, it's a local you know Kiwanis Club or whatever it is. They're they're meant to inculcate value of some kind. Do we have the strength to do it? I don't know, but that's what we have to do.
0: I'll, I'll press on that if you don't mind. Yeah, go ahead because we also like to think about when we have gatherings like this, people leave, they're inspired, which I know they will be because of your your comments. What do we do as individuals? So I mean, really, pressing on this, tonight when our friends are home, tomorrow morning when they're up and they're thinking, Bishop Barron made these really good philosophical historical arguments, but this is what I have been tasked to do, to revitalize institutional life. The press is. What does that look like for us day to day?
2: Well, I think with parents have I been mean, teaching your kids and, and being deeply aware of uh, the, as I said, the epistemic and the moral and the aesthetic realms, and to introduce them to those realms, to make sure if you're on you know school boards, make sure your school's doing that, um, vote for politicians that understand that dimension of public life, and and avoid a, a merely sort of as I was putting it there a, a purely Hobbesian understanding of things. So I think you know politically, socially, educationally. Um, address the institutions you're part of and make sure that they're trading in real, objective value. If I may uh,
0: ask a little bit of a hard question for any
2: of us uh, who care
0: about institutions, are there institutions? I'm thinking primarily about schools that
2: are too far gone. Yeah, it could be some of them. I'm yeah. Not putting you on the
0: spot, no, honestly,
2: there, there, truly, but there could be. And I, I have friends of mine who have founded schools. You mm-hmm. know, and there's a whole movement in our country. Think of the uh, the Chesterton Academies in the, sure. in the Catholic you know world. The people who've Taken it upon themselves to invent new educational institutions and have done a good job at it. You know, uh, raised the money and and uh, hired the faculty and the administrators and organized them institutionally. Um, so I admire that. Instead of complaining, you know, do something. Um, and elect. I remember uh, Cardinal George of Chicago, who died what about seven years ago, was sort of a mentor to me. And you know, as a a major archbishop of this country, he'd get complaints all the time, you know, why isn't the church doing more, and, uh, what's going on, and can't we, and he would say, well, you elected these people. <laughs> he'd say to the, the LA people, you elected them, you know, so now take public responsibility in your political life and, and get better people elected. Uh,
0: if de Tocqueville were here, he would remind us <laughs> of that too. Yeah. And, and speaking of him, I love your concept that you really, you pushed on the Tocquevillian equilibrium. And it, it causes me to ask this question. It seems as if we have, we have two problems, among others, the degradation of civic culture and the deterioration of, of political life broadly. What we feel often here at Heritage and scanning the audience, people from in and around the nation's capital doing political work in sort of an Aristotelian sense, the collision of those two things or the combination of those two things seem like we're almost in a, a helpless spiral. And is the only answer out of that, or the first only answer out of that, spiritual life? Is there anything in the secular world that, that can initiate that revitalization?
2: No, I mean, sure. It's so uh, when you're in touch with moral values. So people who are in the world of business or the world of finance or world of entertainment in the cultural realm, what are the moral values that obtain? So it's not just you know making money or it's not just uh, advancing my reputation, but what are the moral values that obtain? Vatican II, for Catholics, talks about the role of the laity is to sanctify the world. And so it's not the the bishop's job to do that. The bishop's job is to teach and to sanctify and then to send send great Catholic business leaders, great Catholic lawyers, great Catholic writers, great Catholic politicians, who are not incidentally Catholic, but they're Catholic at the heart of what they do. And every time you make a moral choice... Uh, John Paul II said that, I mean, you're, you're doing something good and you're also making yourself better. You're creating your own character in a way. Um, so do something morally upright in, in whatever uh, area of life you're in. And related to that is
0: we have sort of forsaken philosophy and theology in the name of, of science, Yes, in the, of the scientific has realm. disastrous. Uh, help us through that, Bishop.
2: What's, no, what's it's, it's been disastrous, and I say that soberly because I see it all the time in young people. A scientism obtains, by which I mean a reduction of all knowledge to the scientific form of knowledge. I love the sciences. The sciences came, I'd say, ex ecclesiae. They came from the heart of the Church, ultimately. Um, I love the sciences, but the sciences can handle one dimension of reality. The scientific method can address a, a swath of reality but it leaves huge areas of, of experience unilluminated. The scientists can't tell you a thing about what makes a moral act good. The scientists can't tell you a thing about what makes a city just. They can't tell you a thing about why there's something rather than nothing. Uh, the scientists can't explain why there are objective intelligibilities. They're they based upon the assumption of objective intelligibility. So, I mean, once you see that, worlds open up. And the trouble with scientism is it locks you again into the, into the buffer itself of the little world that I can managed through the scientific method, um, but that's, that's where the spiritual, the religious comes in. Religion is not a closing of the mind, it's an opening of the mind. That's a great prejudice of, of a lot of young people to say that to be religious means I'm superstitious, I'm, I'm turning away from science, I'm, I'm living in my own little fantasy world. No, no, au contraire. It's like religion is what opens you up. It opens you up to, to a transcendent dimension. Uh, it, so scientism, is doing great damage to young people, I think. It's damaging their souls in very serious ways.
0: It sounds like you would encourage us as thinking about our homework assignments to, to make the distinction as we're especially speaking to people in that ever-increasing category of, of not religiously affiliated, yeah. making the distinction between science and scientism, yeah. which might open the the possibility of a conversation to, to raise some of your additional points.
2: You no, know, Quite right. And I, I would say to people, ask the meta questions why should the world be intelligible at all? That's a really puzzling question, and there's not one science, qua science, that can answer that question because the science depends upon it. You have to assume the world is radically intelligible. Where does that come from? How do you explain that? Einstein said the most incomprehensible thing about the world is that it's comprehensible. Or um, it's Eugene Wigner, the famous article of 1960, uh, on the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics in the physical sciences. Vigner was a, a secular Jew, but in that article, he used the word miracle like nine times because it just struck him as so odd. Why would high-level mathematics work so well in the physical world, which it clearly does, unless there's something like, like real intelligibility, unless the one behind the world is something like a mathematician? You know, so To me, those are really interesting questions. In, in my dialogues with, um, with atheists on, online, I find when you get to those questions, they get really uninterested real fast. Like, <laughs> it's just the way it is. It's just the way it is? That's your answer? It's just the way it is? So I see religion is, is what teases you to a wider, higher perspective on things. What's your greatest success story,
0: you know, either anecdotally or a larger group with, with atheists with, or with people who are religiously unaffiliated, a little more open to your message?
2: I don't know if I, I forgot to pick one out. Just today at the bishop's meeting, I was stopped by one of my… A brother bishop? Huh? Yeah, yeah, right. He was an atheist, and now he's a bishop. Oh, You, you, you give so, us such
0: hope, Bishop Barrett.
2: He told me about the… Uh, we have a, a ritual called the rite of election, when people are coming into the Catholic Church and there's this great gathering of uh, catechumens who are coming in. And he, he, said, he took me aside and said, three of the folks told me that they, they were atheists and they started listening to your videos and it brought them to the church. So. Things like that—that's what makes me happy. <laughs> gives me a sense of uh, of achieving something worthwhile. Well, I'll say genuinely, and I, and I know from from the, on behalf of plenty
0: of non-Catholics who are here at Heritage and, and non-Catholic friends in the audience, they find and they would say this, you know, very genuinely, Bishop, thank you for that. And and it's motivated a lot of people to think that in addition to whatever they're doing in their quote-unquote day job, what can they do in media or social social media to Aid the cause what 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 encouragement or something some specific idea would you give them
2: i I would say get as much as you can help people get out of this um suffocating subjectivism that it's 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 grown in the course of my lifetime but it's just rampant today of i invent myself i invent values it's up to me i decide i choose don't tell me i will vaguely tolerate you and you vaguely tolerate me and let's have a leviathan state that makes sure we don't you know kill each other I mean what a what a horribly restricted view of life that's why as I end the talk with objective value objective value find find what it is in the aesthetic order the epistemic order the moral order that has drawn you out of your own egotism has made you feel alive and has has lit your own soul on fire and then share that with people let them know about that introduce them to the world of dante or the world of whoever you know uh, uh, Beethoven or whoever has, has made your soul sing a- and get help our young people out of this morass that this subjectivism has drawn them into so
0: as a follow-up question to that do you think that this trend toward a higher percentage of the American populace being religiously unaffiliated will will continue apace or do you sense I'm sort of searching for some hopefulness here yeah. that that we're going to
2: turn the corner? Well, I don't know if I—I if I, I don't know about turning the corner uh, anything oh, real. We're looking for hope, <laughs> but—but no, I'll say this though. You know, uh, I started doing the, my evangelical work what about 20 years ago, and YouTube had just come into being at that time. Uh, it's like 2007, and people have little videos up of you know my dog jumps off the roof, and but but I had this idea of, well, if I just started talking about you know films or about books or ideas and and. Uh, we didn't know. I had no idea if anybody would watch. And in the beginning, we had like a couple hundred people watching, and I was thrilled. You know, a t- couple hundred people watched my video. Um, <laughs> but I started I, commenting. You know, people would comment, and I would I would answer. And it, it usually, they'd come out with some you know sharply critical remark about me or about God or about religion. But all right, all right, I got a toehold though. All right, I, I there, you're out there somewhere, and you made an argument. So let me try to answer that argument. Um, and it's now, what, 125 million views later. And I, I think that's um, a hopeful sign that most people that use, I mean, some are, are devout religious people that would watch you know, my videos. But a lot of them still would be, I'd say, young people searching. I don't know if you know this, this young fellow. He's like uh, Christopher Hitchens, Jr. His name is Alex O'Connor. And he's uh, from Oxford. Young guy, very bright, very articulate. And he's called the uh, cosmic skeptic. And he's a, just an arch atheist. I've been on twice with him now and uh, love those conversations. You know, So I, I do think there's great hope if we can um, speak in a, in a you know, rationally compelling and passionate way about the things of God. I think people will catch that fire with uh, great
0: cheerfulness, right?
2: Yeah, be a happy warrior and um, you know, just fight the good fight. That's what the Lord's given us to do, I think, in our time. That's the, that's the call of our time as we're up against this uh, wave of, of secularism. You know, like when I was, I, I, I cited those statistics. When I was a kid, early 1970s, 97% of our country would have said, I'm religious, you know? 3% back then said, I'm not religious. Now it's 26%, 40 among the young people. Well, that makes a huge difference in a society. And I think that's the call of our time is to fight that.
0: A couple final questions before we
2: wrap. Uh, the first is for
0: the Catholics in the audience, especially you scan the audience nothing against people who are perhaps a little bit older than, than us, but heavily young audience, and many of them Catholic. And they will often ask me and, and other Catholics on, the Capitol, on Capitol Hill, why haven't we taught the tradition of the church? You know, if we understand that our Catholic heritage is ever ancient, ever new, how do we reclaim that and live that out? I know this is a, a, a question of great interest, even for non-Catholics in the audience.
2: Yeah. And honestly, I lived through that. And it still remains a bit of a puzzle because uh, we did it to ourselves to a large degree. Um, You look at Catholic, even like sixth grade uh, books of, of catechism or theology. They're darn serious. What they were teaching sixth graders in 1945. What I got, I was the first generation after Vatican II. I got banners and balloons. Uh, (laughs) But I did. I mean, religion, no one took it seriously. Uh, It wasn't a serious subject. And it was presented that way to us. Math and science and history, they were kind of serious. They had religions like gym class or it's like, you know. It just wasn't a serious subject. Well, my generation took that in. And then they grew up and they realized this kind of silly, superficial um, banners and balloons religion was not going to sustain them. And they let go of it. I don't blame Vatican II at all. Vatican II is written by the smartest people in mid-20th century Catholicism. And they're marvelous, the Vatican II documents. But I do blame the post-conciliar church that trained me. Um, and you know, God knoweth why. They were trying to be irrelevant or they felt they'd lose the young people. Just the opposite happened. They lost the people because they taught that way. Um, but we're making a comeback. I mean, we really have there, I think, turned the significant corner in improving our religious instruction. But we, I fight it to this day. We still dumb ourselves down. And I've been railing against dumbed-down Catholicism for decades now. It was a pastoral disaster. If you look at the surveys, of they ask young people, why'd you leave? You know the number one answer, it's not the sex abuse scandal. It's The number one answer is, I don't believe this. I, I, I don't believe the doctrines. They don't make sense to me. They were very, very poorly educated. And um, that's on us. You know, we did that to ourselves. We met the enemy, and it's us. Um, So that's that's I'm beating that drum all the time. Believe me, with with my brother bishops, and I said it at at the big Los Angeles Religious Education Congress, forty thousand people, and I said, stop dumbing it down, and they all cheered. And I said, well, do something about it. It was (laughs) it was a room full of publishers and teachers, and I said, well, do change it. You know,
0: anyway, people had a lot of faith in you. Last last question for, for everyone in the audience. Of course, we have a lot of people online, and thank you all for joining. And that is, uh, this is a group of folks who work on Capitol Hill. And even though they're cheerful and hopeful, they sometimes, I can speak on their behalf, are on the brink of despair, mm-hmm. meaning they care deeply about this great republic. They care deeply about their faith. They care deeply even about people with whom they have political disagreements. But on the best day, it's a grind. And on the worst day, it's a lot worse.
2: Yeah. What encouragement do you give us? I remember why you got into it. I mean, remember the, early, the earliest moment when you decided, this is why I want to get into this life. Because I, I do. I think public service is a, is a beautiful form of life. And to shape the laws that, look, I'm an Aristotelian. I mean, law shapes the will, which shapes the, how we choose. Uh, law is always about morality. It's not sometimes about it. It's always about morality. And so you're in the morality business Uh, if you're if you're legislating um remember what it was like like why you got into this for the first time and what you're discovering i would argue if we pull this thing all the way out you're discovering the call of god it was god summoning you to something i i i call on that when i have some days that are like a like a grind um so i'd say to everybody here remember when god first called you into this form of life and then do something noble every day do something morally you know, noble every day, Um, and you'll get through. (laughs) Thank you for that.
0: (laughs) Well, we will conclude here momentarily. I'll I'll just say before we do that, as we conclude, thank you for being here. Thank those of you who've joined online. It's so great to look out in this wonderful auditorium and see every seat filled and then some. And if you would, just permit us a moment of courtesy. Uh, The bishop and I will will head out and uh, just give us a, a moment to do that. But most importantly, please join me in thanking Bishop Robert Barron.